You are listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. Coming up in today's episode. In a way, it's easy to forget that farming, while being a business, is also a place of great cultural significance and from where lots of cultures stem. It's also the source of a lot of identity and ideas about who you are and what you do, what your family has done. I'm Mary-Jane Laurie, and in this episode, I'm joined by Anna Alamand from the Soil Association. Originally from Chile, Anna has an interesting perspective on innovation, culture and identity in agriculture. She tells us about farming in Chile, her move to Scotland and what her role with the Soil Association involves. She works as a knowledge exchange manager, working with farmer groups to encourage innovation in agriculture. We had a really interesting conversation about the importance of farmers connecting with each other to share ideas. And we also talked about the cultural importance of farming, both in Scotland and on a global scale. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mary Jane. It's lovely being here. Can you tell us where you're from originally? I'm actually from Latin America. I'm Chilean, so (laughs) Chile right by Argentina under Peru, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but sometimes I find that it's one of the non-obvious Latin American countries. So, <laughs> And did you grow up in a rural setting or on a farm? No, I actually grew up in the city, but my dad worked in agriculture, which meant that lots of weekends we were dragged, a bit kicking and screaming, I will confess, uh, into farms, especially during the summer. It's one of those funny things where growing with a parent that ha- works in agriculture and stuff and you having different schedules than most people. Mm-hmm. So in summer, everybody was going to beachside. I was being dragged into table grape orchards usually. Even though I was living in the city, I actually had a very rural side to my life that most people didn't necessarily have. So did that set you up then for wanting to work in agriculture? Did you go and study something else first? I was dead against it. I was like, never again will you see me in a field. I will live my (laughs) urban life. I was like, I was, you know, I I went through that teenager years where I was very snobbish and quite sort of like, I want to be an intellectual Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll get into my book reading and I'll never leave the city because this is my place to be. And I find that this is sort of like, not an unusual story for people that have been that have grown up in rural environments or were with a rural side to their lives, that they're like dead against it because you're not necessarily like if, if they don't explain what's happening, it's just being around in a farm and it's like, but I want to be with my friends. So no, I was dead against it. I went away, studied history, then I studied okay. journalism mm-hmm. and then I came back to agriculture because at the end of the day, it's sort of like, it just made sense and it was interesting and I kept on falling back to my interest into in food systems, but also it's just such a global environment if you want mm-hmm. to, to be, especially in Chile where we export most things, that if you're interested in the world, that's a great place to be. So what is agriculture like in Chile? What sorts of things do they grow there? It's very Mediterranean environment. So it's, it's one of the great things that makes Chile in general very suitable for agriculture. Basically, there's not that many Mediterranean weathers around the world. And mm-hmm. we produce some of the fruits that everybody loves. So you have table grapes and you have cherries and you have peaches. So all that kind of fruit. And it's only, I think it's Chile, South Africa, some parts of Australia and the Mediterranean, California. That's where you can grow them. And we're counter season as well. Yeah. So it's that kind of environment. 
If you go further south in Chile, you have a lot of livestock, but in the area where I was, which is a central area, it's mostly fruit uh, and horticulture in general. Okay, that's interesting. So as you say, most of it then for the export market for us in Scotland when we want fruit in the winter, <laughs> I guess a lot of it will come from Chile then over here, does it? Yeah, I've had a bizarre situation where I'm in Olopo and there's this very specific uh, variety of table grapes that the company that I used to work is the only one that was producing. And being mm-hmm. in Olapo and picking it up and being like, oh, I know this farm. It's just bizarre. Yeah. So, yeah, all the way from the south of Chile to Olapo. That was quite something. It's especially because Chile is in counter season. Mm-hmm. It allows us to, we used to have that space in, in global markets where it would be, there's nothing, it's winter. We're actually providing the fruit that you're going to be eating. So I guess it's pretty important for the local economy then. And do a lot of people work in agriculture over in Chile? Yeah, it's huge. It's it's really, really important. And it's also sort of like important, I would say, not only economic wise, which it is, it's huge, but it's also very important culturally wise. Okay. It's a country that really looks into the countryside, which is interesting because we could be a maritime country. We have so much coast and yet we don't really turn to the coast. It's all very inward looking and towards the land. And it's been like that since at least since the colonial times, it's always been very focused on what we can produce on the land and then potentially even export. So what made you come over to Scotland then? Love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's Scottish. And okay. We tried to live in Chile for a while. And it's sort of like, it's one of those things where it sounds so cliche, but it's true. He's a roadie, so that means that for work, he travels. He could okay. be anywhere in the world. So we mm-hmm. lived in Chile for about four or five years. But during the summer, that's the low season for people traveling for for music, which is what he does. And he was just too hot. So <laughs> it would be three solid months where I would come back from work, especially that was the height of my work. So I would come back absolutely exhausted. And he would be like, I couldn't move. It was too hot. <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> and eventually it was like, it's pointless. You miss home as well. And I think that that's one of the things as well. Scottish people really miss home in my experience. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, you know what? I'm I'm fine. Let's go give it a try. And we're going to give it just a year and see mm-hmm. what happened. And I've been here for seven. So I think it oh, worked. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how are you adjusting? Obviously, your husband was too hot in Chile. How are you finding the weather in Scotland? It's, it's the only thing that I just, I sort of like, I scream about. It's sort of like, it's interesting because I thought it, it could have been really difficult. I thought that the culture could have been really different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that Scottish people are not massively different from Latins in that mm-hmm. people are outgoing, people talk, people really hug each other. You're like, there's a touchy feelingness there that I wasn't expecting. So that was all fine. And then the winter started. And yeah, the weather, I can't, like, I have no words because it never ends. But having said that, I'm assuming that if we had nice weather here in Scotland, it would be absolutely packed full of people. So I'll take it as a good way to keep it sort of like slow and tiny. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. So when you came over to Scotland, were you working in agriculture in Chile before you came over? Or did you come over here not really knowing what you were going to get into work-wise? I wasn't completely sure. I mean, I was still working in agriculture back home. So Mm -hmm. I was working in in an exporting company in charge of the cherry project that they had. Not very translatable at all. No. Cherries don't like wet weather. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
But I, I knew I really liked agriculture. I knew that was something that made sense to me. I've sort of like done the history, done the publishing house, all the other things. So I knew that I really, really liked it. But when I came here, I wasn't completely sure what I was going to be doing. Fortunately, for a while, I was working as a liaison between some American investors working in Chile. So it didn't okay. really matter where I was. Yeah. So for a while, that still kept on going. But in the meantime, I started studying. I did an MBA in okay. the University of Edinburgh. And there I met a few people that were involved in sort of like in regenerative agriculture, in sort of like innovation and things like that. And then I absolutely like the penny dropped. And I was like, that's exactly the piece of the puzzle that I was missing in agriculture. And it makes sense. And yeah, I started working with the Soil Association, which is agriculture from another angle, if you will, more around facilitating and being this a supporting piece rather than farming directly, yeah. uh, at least in my position. And yeah, it made sense. So it was all good. Can you tell me about your role at the Soil Association then? So my role in the Soil Association, I'm a knowledge exchange manager, which sounds very complex, but it's basically, it's almost like a translation position in a way. Because it's all around sort of like making it easier for people to access the knowledge that they need. And when I say people, I'm thinking all kinds of very diverse farmers and crofters, making sure that we connect with the right people on a policy level and on a knowledge level, Mm -hmm. and that we bring that knowledge back to the people that are doing the work on the land and trying to translate it. Sometimes it's because of the formation, because of the way that those worlds work in a way, they have a very specific way of seeing things and specific way of communicating things. And that's not necessarily the most practice-oriented version of things. Mm -hmm. So it's all around getting that knowledge, vetoing that knowledge in a way, which sounds like veto is a grand word, just checking that it's it's the kind of knowledge that aligns with what we've seen is working or what our audiences are interested in and bringing it to them in a more comprehensible language or a more practice-ready approach. So how do you do that then? Do you have farmer groups or are you relying on publications? How do you get that knowledge out there to farmers? I would say probably the most of it is knowledge uh, peer-to-peer. Okay. There, there I go, you see. I go researching immediately, but just farmers talking to each other that seems to be the best way so the soil association works a lot around trying to create networks mm-hmm. and having those networks develop and just you're the facilitator and literally it's about making sure taking all the brunt of having to organize of having to coordinate of having to do all those things out of the system and just facilitating the space where farmers can come together so that's mm-hmm. a big part of it Uh, Especially with agroforestry, we're testing different networks of agroforesters or farmers interested in agroforestry all around the country. But it's also one-offs, so creating spaces where it's a farm visit and farmers can come and you decide on a topic, so they'll go and see something specific. But it's more an excuse to get people together and talking. So I would say coffee and biscuits are the most important part of those visits sometimes. (laughs) I think that's true, though, isn't it? It's just... Farming is quite an isolating job, like a lot of time is spent working on your own. And um, you're, you're so right about that sort of social aspect of it being really important. And of course, you're there to learn, but it's like getting those connections are really important, I think, aren't they? Absolutely crucial. And also, I think there's this part that we tend to 
I'm not sure if we tend to forget, but my experience ever since I've been small is sort of like seeing farmers as super innovative people, even though they're perceived as very conventional, mm-hmm. I'm yet to find a farmer that's not testing something in a little corner in their farm. Yeah. Um, so even if like on a, on a big scale, they're conventional or progressive or whatever you want to call them, if they're doing something on a big scale, that's one thing, but there's always somewhere where they're testing something. So in my head, they're like always innovating, always testing. But if you just keep it to yourself, it kind of dies a little bit. Whereas if you provide a place where they can just come and talk about it, sometimes the small ideas, the small plots, the small testing grounds can actually gain uh, momentum and become something else and something that's useful for more people. And also, as you say, it can be really isolating. So being able to share that creativity, I think, brings a lot of joy at least in my experience um there's nothing that makes me more exciting than seeing two farmers talking about something new that they're doing yeah and then you're like oh my god there's people are geniuses how did i not think about it but um it's just providing those spaces that make such a difference and so the, the word innovative then what do you mean by innovation and in farming like so you're saying trying something new what sort of projects are people working on at the moment what sort of groups and discussions are you having uh, in the Soil Association, we're working with lots of farmers, so you don't have to be organic to work with us, which mm-hmm. sometimes sounds counterintuitive because we do organic certification. But when in our sort of like farm facing side of things, we work with any farmer who's testing anything that might actually support their work in ways that reduces inputs, that reduces um, sort of like pressure on the land, if you will, sort of like making sure that we support them in relying on on the ecosystem in ways that have not necessarily been the case in the past 50 or 70 years. Um, And that's pretty much the limit, to be honest, as long as they're sort of like moving towards more friendly farming practices or practices that will take a little bit of the brunt out of the land. That's that's where the heart of is. Reducing inputs, really important. Reducing insecticides, really important. But anything else is sort of like fair game. We are very focused on practice in general, not to say that we're not interested in sort of like more practical hardware machinery. But in general, the approach at the moment has been focusing on, okay, what practices need to change. Uh, And if some practices are further advanced, then you can get into the machinery because then it makes more sense to to get into it. If you're going to start with the machinery, sometimes you kind of, choke the innovation at the very beginning we all know that there's the the climate crisis and the biodiversity loss crisis at the moment and there's been a real sort of push in the press and media about you know how farmers are partly responsible for that and it can feel sometimes like we're being not attacked but blamed for some Mm -hmm. of these these issues so it's nice to hear that there's like positive steps being taken do you think that that the shift is going to be towards more regenerative agriculture or do you think if if everyone just tried a little bit of innovation that things would would be enough i mean in my perspective any move towards that is a good move so that's why i think that it's really important not to be not to have an all or nothing approach yeah at the end of the day people need to make a living businesses need to happen and change is really really hard and really really expensive even if it's small changes that requires sort of like a lot. And what we're asking from farmers now is to move to holistic practices after telling them to focus, focus, focus on one thing. So in a way, there's a double challenge there in trying to 
reorientate the culture on farm to make sure that yield is not the one goal, but that we open to a series of things. More importantly, I think that there is something around ensuring that practices move towards that while farmers can still make a living. And that's sort of like challenge. So I think it is moving towards that regenerative space or organic space or agroecological space. It's just, it takes time and it's hard, especially because farmers at the moment, there's not that much clarity about how they're going to make it and who's going to take the brunt of the expenses, of the knowledge that is required, who's going to provide it, and of what the customers are expecting. Because it's really easy to say we want all this, but if the food's not paying the price, who's paying that buffer? And these are all discussions that are wider than the farm in terms of understanding the food systems. An easy solution to say, well, things need to change in the farm. And it's like, oh, it's a little bit more complex than that. So I think that farmers take a lot, a brunt of the responsibility without necessarily being provided with the tools to change it. And I yeah. think that's a bit unfair, very unfair. I actually get quite red when I start talking about this. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you what you think is holding farmers back from being innovative, but you kind of answered it there. Do you think it is money a lot of the time? Because there is... At the end of the day, they are running businesses and what they've been doing up till now, presumably, has been making money because they're still in business and they're still doing well. Do you think that's the main thing or is it also just like a sort of fear of change? You know, in farming, it's often a long, slow process to change from one system to the other, especially with livestock. You know, if you've been breeding livestock for potentially decades with different family members and then you know you're trying to shift towards something else it's quite a big thing and it can be expensive but also it's quite daunting to think about changing anything is that the main things you think are holding farmers back from being innovative yes and I also think that there's a cultural aspect to it that is really easy to oversee lots of things especially in agriculture ends up being weaved in a cultural thing it ends up like there's lots of folk songs that actually if you if you look at them and analyze them they're like providing you tools to how to farm effectively in the 1400s whatever it is in a way it's easy to forget that farming while being a business is also a place of great cultural significance and from where lots of cultures stem it's also the source of a lot of identity and ideas about who you are and what you do what your family has done so in a way it's hard sometimes to change because it means not only breaking with the practice, which is hard enough, but it's also breaking with a series of ideas about identity, about your community, about what it means to be farming. And then when it comes to that, you're actually asking people not only to change practices, but you're actually asking them to separate themselves a little bit from all these cultural ideas and personal ideas. And that's, again, a huge ask, which doesn't necessarily translate into an urban setting where you might be, I don't know, a graphic designer. It's a bit different. It doesn't require the level of cultural commitment that farming does sometimes. And that's a part of the piece of the puzzle that I think we tend to forget how intense it is personality-wise to be a farmer. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the cultural side of things, because farming... Whilst I'm saying it's difficult to make changes, farming has changed rapidly in the you know since the mechanization and all the wonderful machines that we've got now. There's fewer people working on farms. We all know that since you know the last hundred years and different ways of doing things. So we have changed a lot in the grand scheme of agriculture in Scotland, but there is still that cultural importance that people feel 
tied to the land and that way of life, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the interesting thing. When everything changed to more mechanization and everything, it didn't really touch that part of the community. It just became sort of like more tools, whereas now we're asking people to sort of like take sides in a way. And I think that that's part of a problem. When you have to take sides, you have to put your identity into what you're doing. And that's when it becomes a little bit more all or nothing. I was reading an interesting article about a conversation where Alan Savory and George Monbiot got together to talk. And they never talked because they were just like so entrenched in their own ideas that they were talking over each other, but they weren't really talking. They were just expressing their ideas to an audience. And I think that that's part of what we need to overcome and understand that different people have different ideas of what it needs to be, that change occurs definitely for everyone, and that the best that we can do is support each other to move towards where we want to be. But you're not going to do it by hammering people over the head. So Anna, do you have an example of how innovation and the cultural identity that you were talking about there, you were talking about some old folk songs and things, Obviously, that's from a long time ago. Is that still woven through what you're seeing now? Do you have any examples of how innovation and that cultural identity are still going hand in hand today? To me, it's sort of like easier to think of examples in Chile, but just because it's one of those things where you, you need to be in the culture to capture them properly. Yeah. But I'm thinking of a few stories, especially towards the south of Chile. There's this area that's where potatoes came from. So there's lots of stories about potatoes and what potatoes are and it's an island in the south of Chile and you still have the legends about the fairies sort of like putting treasures on the land that people could actually dig out it's very around sort of like how do you dig it and this is how the treasure was hunted and everything and then you start seeing what the traditional way of harvesting potatoes are and it's like yeah they were talking about potatoes that's really interesting because <laughs> they're different they're sort of like super dark so you actually need to see them in particular ways and blah 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 there's lots of things like that that if you know your culture you can actually start looking at them uh, and you can start making the connections Nikki Yokso she knows a lot about this because she's been sort of like looking into it and everything um, so I think that it might be worth asking her a few questions in her Twitter if this is something that you're interested in because it's fascinating yeah. how at the end of the day you need it to pass knowledge and stories and songs at the end of the day humans really like them that's the easiest way to pass the knowledge along a little bit like the peer-to-peer knowledge it's all around conversations and that's where it gets to someone telling you the story of how they planted this and this happened and everything we make stories of everything And that's the kind of information that most people really remember, something that's weaved into a story. A very technical thing. It's always great to have the PDF in front just in case. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any examples in Scotland of the work that you've been doing with the Soil Association or people that you've heard of then that are going back to that sort of cultural information to then change the way they're farming today? One of my favorites, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone who knows me, Roger Howison is a farmer that's doing a really interesting silvo-arable project in his land. And so basically silvo-arable is where you plant trees alongside different either grass for hay or grains. So you basically keep the space where you would be cropping your grass or I mean your, your grains or your hay or anything else and then around it you put trees of different varieties especially usually for fruit or for uh, wood so it becomes a double act mm-hmm. and the interesting thing is that he's doing it in Fife 
right by Lindor's Abbey Distillery, okay. which is an old abbey that actually focused on doing cider. That was their thing. And now it's a distillery and it's a whiskey distillery. So it was like all around liquors, I think, and he might correct me if I'm wrong, but last time I was there, he mentioned as well that it's the first place where they have like a tax for whiskey in the 1400s. So there's all that story there. And he's literally, you can see it from the farm. You can see the broken down buildings and the new distillery. And with the apples of this system that he's created, he's doing cider. And also with the with the grains that he's growing, they're doing whiskey. And all of this is happening, or at least a part of it is happening in the distillery. So it brings back that ancient knowledge and ancient capacities. And you have a story to tell, uh, just for for the record, the cider that he's created, which is called Apple, I think, which is sort of like the old way of spelling apple in, in Scotland. Um, is brilliant and it's really new and it's sort of like dry. So it's like very innovative, even in, in the world of ciders, it's sort of like a new version, but it's quite anchored in the story that was there before. And I think in a way, I'm not sure that Roger would 100% agree with me, but looking at from the outside, what him and Rachel are doing there is they, it feels like they've really run with the identity of being innovators and sort of like becoming people's, people that can really grasp the story and really grasp good stories uh, and move them into their personality and bring them into the new century. So I just, that one is one that I absolutely love. I tell everyone every time that I can go have that cider or the the apple juice, with the, which they now have as well. Um, but in a way, it's also beautiful how they're making the most of the place where they are and celebrating the place and making sure that people understand the place and how it can actually go from the land all the way to a bottle within a very short space and I just love that story plus both of them are brilliant I find that really interesting and and obviously in Scotland whiskey is a big um export for us massive industry for us and it reminds me of what they're doing over on Isla um you know on the west coast when the islands over there it's a big whiskey Mm -hmm. island um and in the past would have grown barley for making the whiskey and then over time it presumably was more cost effective to import from the mainland and it's not the most productive soil you know the climate can be tricky over there um but in in recent years they've gone back to growing barley to malt on the island well I think it has to be exported to malt but bring it back then to, to make it into whiskey so I think that's a similar sort of thing and the farmers there are embracing that again and starting to grow spring barley and it's now becoming profitable for them because there's a, a clear market and there's the, the marketing of that as well that it's a, a local product made on the island and you know from start to finish mm-hmm. I think that's the way things kind of have to go when when we're thinking about global food miles and, and whilst it's great we're importing stuff from Chile when you're talking about fruits and things for products that we can grow and make in this country I think it's important to focus on on, on food miles and trying to keep that heritage alive by making that part of the product that it is grown and bottled or, or you know, whatever you're, however it's processed in within a location. 100%. Also sort of like, I would challenge that we need table grapes in winter, which is going to make <laughs> my family never talk to me again. But, um, I totally agree. I think that the whole discussion around sort of like shortening the supply chains is really important. But also sort of like, even if you don't want to go necessarily that route, even just making sure that everything is produced within a space, it brings a sense of pride as well, which I think is really important. I was watching, was it last year that they, was it? 
can't remember which whiskey it was, but they had this beautiful story in Botol around the idea of that round church that they have there. Okay. And that the devil cannot really hide there. And it's the beauty of it because mm-hmm. it's round. There's no corners to hide. And they made the whole sort of like a special edition around it. And there was an illustrator came and illustrated the story and everything. And I think Scotland should actually take advantage of that. Like the amount of stories. I know that everybody talks about Scotland being storytellers, but you make a story out of going to the supermarket and it's the most fascinating, (laughs) epic story that I've ever heard. And that is really ingrained in everywhere. Like the, the oral side of the culture is so strong that there's all this potential, this amazing potential to actually be a source of pride be a source of marketing, if you will, as well, but also a source of community just by people from different, with different kinds of knowledges coming together to create one product that represents their community. And I think it sounds very dreamy, but also from a business perspective, it's really good. So you have both sides and it's a win-win. And as you say, it's sort of like the idea of Isla, like, I don't know, in Chile, everybody knows, well, not everybody, but people who know whiskey know what an Isla whiskey is yeah. and what the difference is. And there's sort of like a great value in that. And if you could do the same with other products, then it's not just Scottish assigned quality, but a lovely story that comes with it that you can share. And that's all about food, isn't it? Sharing. So if you can have a story that actually supports a nice evening with your friends, why wouldn't you? think a lot of that is coming more to the fore with all these agritourism businesses that we're seeing now inviting people back onto farm whether that's getting them on you know to do like a a pumpkin picking day or something but while they're there telling them about how they grow the rest of the crops on the farm or other foods that they produce and and maybe I'm thinking of example in East Lothian where they they bottle their own apple juice as well and that and they've just planted a new orchard there's quite a few of them doing that and I think that's nice to have people coming onto the farm that are not involved in agriculture just for a day out but then while they're there they're learning something about the food and where it comes from and culture and everything of the region I think that's a lot more businesses are are harnessing that now and I think it's also I totally agree with what you're saying and I think it's also essential if we're gonna ask people to understand why it's important to support businesses that are doing things different if we want people to understand why farmers are struggling to change, we actually need to give them access and explain it to them. So all these farmers that are doing these things, they're amazing in doing that, but there's also responsibility to some of the other actors in the food business, um, supermarkets, uh, ONGs like us, policymakers, to talk about it because in a way it feels like the brunt of the, of, of the change, of the explanation, of talking to consumers all the things are sort of like piled onto the farmers and it's like they can't do everything at all times. So in a way, it's spectacular that they're doing it. I absolutely love it. I'm like the biggest fan of all these things, but at the same time, it feels like we could do better in in supporting all these changes in different ways. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. It's, It's a lot for farming businesses, you know, having to first of all, being the farmer and physically grow and produce the crops to high standard, that is enough in its own, but they've also <laughs> got to be bookkeepers and accountants and be able to understand policy and all the changes that are coming our way with subsidy changes at the moment. And then if they're not quite making enough money with the farming activities for whatever reason, then, oh, well, well now we need to do a diversification and we also need to know about tourism and marketing and, and all these things. So you're totally right. There's a lot of 
pressure and I think farmers probably feeling that pressure more so now than ever with all the changes that are coming with policy we don't quite know what's going to happen from 2025 but we do know that there are going to be extra hoops to jump through for subsidy I guess it's probably a time where farmers are feeling there's change coming not quite sure what to do which way to go but your sort of discussion groups are there give you that opportunity to air these concerns and as you were saying earlier somebody somewhere will have tried something different that might just give them that idea Exactly. And it's also an opportunity to try to connect with people that are not necessarily farmers. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. it's really hard for any industry to connect to another industry because we're all so specialized. So having this network opportunities, sometimes bringing a researcher along and bringing someone who's in policy, that really helps. One, because you can start creating connections. And the whole idea of networks is that eventually the person that started it or pushed gave the first push becomes irrelevant because the networks have their own energy and their own moment. But to do that, you need to start creating connections with people that are not necessarily within the usual suspects and sort of like bring someone who knows policy, bring someone who knows research and making sure that they get to have questions asked to them and they get to ask questions as well, just to make sure that we're actually representing what's happening in ground. I think that that's one of the one of the beauties of these uh, kind of events or groups or whatever you want to call them, they become spaces where you can actually start seeing different perspectives that are not necessarily within your reach otherwise. And honestly, just again, every time that I think of everything that the farmers are doing, the fact that they put the time to go to any of these extra events, I'm like, how do you do it at the end of the day? Like after being in front of a computer for, I don't know, nine to five, I'm like, where's my Netflix? And you've been out there since six o'clock in the morning doing all those things and you still have the time and the passion to do this. So I think that in itself is something to celebrate, but also we need to make it worthwhile. Uh, So bringing people from, from other areas that can support and make it easier for them to access the knowledge that otherwise is not necessarily super accessible. That, I think, is part of, of what we should keep front of mind and, and just make sure that farmers have the access to that. So where can people get more information about the groups that you, Soil Association, run? Is, is there a website that they can find information? At the moment, there's we're part of a really, really cool group that is developing a program called Creative Enabling the transi- Agroecology Enabling the Transition. That's the right name. And it's consortia where we're working with Nature, friendly farming, pasture for life, propagate, uh, land workers alliance, soil association, the crofting federation, and nourish. And we're all working together, creating different groups across the country where people can uh, connect. And it's very different topics. So people can, if you're interested in agroforestry, there's a group. If you're interested in horticulture, there's a group. Biodiversity, there's a group, one for crofting, one for pasture. I'm missing one. Someone will murder me. Anyways, but you have all the different groups, which I'll I'll put the the website, I'll give it to you because it's a bit confusing. But if you look for agroecology enabling the transition nourish, you should it should pop up. And it's a space where farmers can come and start connecting. The beauty as well is it's in different parts of the country. So even if you're for example, in the islands, there is a group for you. If you're more interested in sort of like wider ideas and not necessarily a geographical space, there's a group for you. So I would definitely sort of like say, go and look there. And then all these different organizations I've just mentioned, they're really good at creating smaller groups. 
So depending on your specific interest, there are some areas that would be better suited for different organizations. Food systems, I would say nourish is amazing, propagate is amazing. For anything pasture-wise, pasture for life, it kind of comes in the name. Yeah. Uh, Land Workers Alliance for anything that's horticulture, a lot around collaboration and working together. They're sort of like the the British chapter of La Vía Campesina. So, and the beauty of all this group, uh, nature-friendly farming is just all around farmers making change, working with nature. So if, if you think about that, you end up having like all this consortium of people from different angles coming to try to be a support to move towards agroecology. And that's where the beauty of the social part of agroecology comes into the fore as well. It's not people working separate. It's not all of us trying to do all things. It's sort of like us trying to focus on what we do best, what we know best, coming together and then providing it to farmers who want to do it. Sorry, I went on a run there about who, where to find the information, but it's, uh, I would say if, if you connect with those groups, then it starts spreading quite good, quite easy. And there's lots of groups on different topics within all these organizations. At this point, I'd like to mention the Farm Advisory Service also run groups that we call FAS Connect, FAS standing for Farm Advisory Service. And it's along similar ideas to what you're doing. And again, running groups across Scotland, they're a bit more generic. So there might just be a beef group or an arable group. And we might focus in on some of the sort of agroecology stuff or the nature friendly farming, biodiversity, climate change. But if you're interested in finding out more about the FAS Connect groups that we're running, we'll put some information in the show notes so that you can contact the local office to find out a group local to you. There's also information about that on the Farm Advisory Service website as well. So Anna, what do you think are the biggest opportunities for farmers at the moment? Uh, That's a tough one because it's one of those where there's so many opportunities about the same time. It's a challenge because of the change factor. There's definitely lots of opportunities around food. I think it's sort of like it it bears mentioning because sometimes we're so focused on all the other things that are happening that we forget the food side. But along the lines of what we've been talking about, good local produce, that's something that has a value in itself. When done correctly, either correctly in terms of with the right networks or with the right connections, it is still a profitable business. And I think that's the key sort of like thinking of your business around profitability rather than yield. The people that are working around profitability, there is a space there for sure. There's definitely all the discussion around green finance. So there is a potential there, but still so blurry that it's getting a bit difficult in terms of, well, do you sell biodiversity credits? Do you sell carbon credits? It's still a bit vague. And that's sort of like, again, something where the brunt is on the farmer. The farmer needs to find out what happens, blah, blah, blah. But there's definitely an opportunity there. So if you're doing things right, you might be putting a little bit of money in the in the system. Interestingly, I would say forestry, which okay. is something that we don't necessarily think in terms of farms. But forestry, well done, sort of like not, not just going and planting trees, uh, but just making sure that you have a tree that's actually going to support what you want to do. It's not long. I visited um, a tree, is it tree hill? Tree hill. They're uh, a farm in the Pentlands, and what they're doing is really interesting. They're just managing their farm to create like the necessary wood, so that's great. But they're also supporting other farmers that want to have farm-scale wood or forest or trees and supporting them and thinking about how they can integrate trees as an extra crop. 
So not necessarily taking all this land out of the system and just planting, but actually doing it with the whole farm in mind and thinking how it can actually become something that brings more to your own system. And that's quite innovative because it's things that don't necessarily require you to change everything, but will make a huge impact. So you could even use your shelter belts. That in itself is enough for them to support you in your process. So there's definitely that. Tourism is always a thing. People are just absolutely nature starved. So when you have the opportunity to show them, but in my mind, it kind of goes back over and over to thinking of your farm holistically. And that always takes me back to sort of like agroecology and telling your story and being proud of who you are and what you're doing, which is can be hard when everybody's shouting at you, like you're guilty of 30% of the global emissions. And you're like, oh, sweetie pie, but it's not necessarily that. I think that's one of the reasons why I really like agroecology as an idea, because it's not only practice, it's also a movement and a social commitment to what you're doing. And I think that that part of the equation is going to be hugely important for this future opportunities to actually bear the biggest reward to you. Do you think the opportunities that you're talking about there are the same globally, are they the same in Chile as they are in Scotland, or is it just like a Scottish level at the moment that you're seeing these these opportunities? They're absolutely global in mm-hmm. that it's all around knowing your environment and what's going to work in your environment. So they're not the same in terms of the produce that you will produce in a wetland or in the sort of like by the seaside or in the middle of a, of a mountain here in Scotland versus the Caribbean. But I think that the idea of having good food that's nutrient dense, that is affordable and that actually respects the environment, that's something that's gaining momentum. So if you're doing that, you're going to have it. The idea of producing high quality wood that will help us stop producing the amount of cement, ideally, or just at least reduce it, or working with nature in ways that will make us more capable of moving forward into the future. That part, I think, is absolutely universal and global. There's definitely the bad side of that is that there's growing trend towards the sustainabilization, if you will, of region in that sustainability. I remember being like really around 10 when they start talking about sustainability in business as a big, big next thing. And it ended up fizzing out because it was devoid of meaning at a certain point. It just became a trendy word. It feels like there's a certain risk of that in, in terms of regenerative, for example, with like big, big players that are not changing much, but are using that because they're changing one or two practices. So there's a certain danger in there on a global scale. I don't think it's particular to Scotland. It happens in Scotland, but it happens everywhere. That could hindrance all these opportunities and all this amazing change that we see is starting to happen by just misusing a word. So again, that's why I really like agroecology as a concept. It's really hard to hijack because it has such a strong idea and set of values behind it. Are you hopeful for the future of farming? Yeah, farming's amazing. (laughs) People are starting to realize it. It's really hard, but it's, I'm definitely hopeful. I think that what people do, it's again, it's, If you meet a farmer and talk to a farmer or a crofter and you see what they do on their daily basis and the amount of love that they have for what they do and the amount of challenges they overcome, it's like we should all be farmers. If we all had their approach to life, we would be living in paradise. We would be fine because it's so much. It's so varied and there's so much interest there. And I think that the challenge is not so much, and I, I, I keep on going back to this, but I think that the farmers have so much on their backs. 
the way to make the most out of it is ensuring that they have the right support systems and that we become tools for them. That's the part that I see that's missing the most. The connections, the people that actually take a little bit of the brunt and allow them to do the job because the baseline feels like it's there. They're amazing. I mean, the fact that they're still producing, the amount of food that they're producing with all the challenges that they have in front of them, with the prices of food, with all these things, and they keep on doing it. It's mind-blowing. If you take a step back and sort of like have a very economics approach to it, it's like, why? You're sitting on land or you're renting land. Land is such an asset and you're still doing it. You're going up. You're waking up in the morning. You're still going. And it's like brilliant. So yeah, I definitely have a lot of hopes for it. Also, you're starting to see new people coming in. If we take it the right way, I think it can be like a massive game changer for everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was really insightful learning about agriculture in Chile and just the discussions around culture. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It was just brilliant. It's one of those things where you sometimes need the space to be able to think about those things. So if anything, it's been great and so much fun. So thank you so, so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. You can also find a link to the Soil Association and also information about our FAS Connect groups. This episode was presented by me, Mary Jane Laurie, produced by Kerry Hammond and edited by Ross McKenzie in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.